Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. We want to welcome you back to our study of the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. Now John 2, 3, and chapter 4 seem to be framed with stories that take place in Cana. Chapter 2, verses 1 and following, Jesus uh, works his first miracle at Cana. Uh, and then chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, end with Jesus again back in the city of Cana. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 54, it says, This again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The reference to the second sign, of course, parallels the first sign uh, that he did in chapter one, verse, um, chapter 2, verse 11. This is the beginning of a science which Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So this appears to be an ancient author's way of framing a section, telling us, hey, here's the beginning, here's the end of a section. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 seem to be framed with miracles, the first and the second miracle that occur in the city of Cana. Now, another feature to notice over the next couple chapters uh, is that Jesus seems to fulfill and surpass elements of Judaism. In chapters 2, verses 1 through 11, he's going to provide the new wine. Then in the next story, Jesus is going to fulfill the role of the temple. And then in the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus is going to fulfill the prophecies of water and the spirit that we'll note that come from the, gospel, from the book of Joel, chapter 3. C.H. Uh, Dodd notes that chapters 2 through 4 center be, seem to be centered around the idea of 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, The old has gone, the new has come. Uh, in these chapters, the old purifications are fulfilled with a new wine of Jesus. The old temple is fulfilled with a new temple in Jesus. The, the old birth is fulfilled with a new birth. The old water with a living water. And then worship in Jerusalem and Gerizim is now fulfilled with worship in spirit and in truth. Now, in order to understand fully what's going on in these chapters and what follows, we also need to note the significance of water. Water symbolizes in John the old institution that's being fulfilled with something better or the newness that Jesus brings. The baptism is going to be fulfilled with the water of Jesus' baptism with the Spirit. The water to wine symbolizing the new covenant, that Nicodemus in chapter 3 must be born with water in the Spirit. In chapter 5, we're going to see a man looking for a cure in the water that only Jesus can actually cure, or at least Jesus can cure directly. In chapter 7, we'll see the water during the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be fulfilled with Jesus, who says he's the source of living water. So in these chapters, in chapter 2, the waters of purification are fulfilled with a new wine. Nicodemus has to be born with water in the Spirit in chapter 3. Chapter 4, water in Jacob's well is fulfilled with water of the Spirit. And in chapter 5, water at the pool is fulfilled by Jesus in the, as the Word of God. Now at the same time, the story of the miracle in Cana and the wedding at Cana seems to be related to, this, to the material in chapter 1 by the fact that John is detailing a week in Jesus' ministry. It seems as though we have a total of seven days. In chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day, which seems to take us to day number 2. Uh, verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, takes us to the third day. Chapter 1, verse 43, the next day, takes it, he, uh, he purposed to go into fourth into Galilee, takes us to the fourth day. And now chapter 2, verse 1 begins with, Now on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, exactly depending on how we count these days, it seems that the reference to the third day uh, means that we're, we're skipping days five and days six. If the fourth day was chapter one, verse 43, and now the third day, which we skipped day five and day six, and now brings us to day, to day seven. If that's the case, we have a new creation occurring on the seventh day. Jesus is going to take water and turn it into wine on the seventh day. Let's continue reading. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. 
When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out some now, and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom, and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor you have kept the good then that which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs which Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother he and his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. Uh, there's a wedding in Cana, maybe even the home of Nathaniel, we really don't know. But this brings to mind us the eschatological marriage, this, this end times wedding of, of God and his people. Isaiah 54 uh, says, your husband is your maker. This wedding is elaborated, elaborated in Isaiah chapters 24 and 25. And it describes this end times banquet when God sits down with his bride uh, at this ultimate wedding. Uh, probably picked up by the book of Revelation in, t- in terms of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, his mother, and his brothers, and apparently his disciples were all invited guests. Now, Mary is actually never named in this gospel. She's only referred to as Jesus' mother, or the mother of Jesus. Now, the wine runs out. Uh, That's a big problem, by the way. Uh, Weddings at this this point in time could last up to a week. The responsibility was for the groom to make sure that there was enough provisions to get through the entire week. To run out was a major social faux pas, especially in a culture of honor and shame. Mary then comes and informs Jesus that they've run out of wine which probably serves as an indication that Mary is uh, helping, uh, helping the, the mother of the groom. Jesus replies to, to Mary by saying, uh, uh, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My, my hour has not yet come. It, it seems to be uh, a radical, disrespectful way of addressing his mother, but at the same time, the, the term woman is not a normal term of address for a son to a mother. It, it kind of establishes a polite distancing. At the same time, it is a respectful form of address and may even have been affectionate, like my lady, something along those, along those lines. So Jesus seems to be hesitant about doing this particular miracle at this particular point in time. And then he makes a statement, my hour has not yet come. This will be one of the more significant statements in the Gospel of John that we're going to have to watch as, it, as we proceed through the Gospel. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. They tried to kill him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. When Jesus indicates his hour has come, it seems in the Gospel of John always to be associated with his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Jesus seems to be indicating that, uh, look, my, the hour of my death is not here, so providing the new wine, is not, it's not the time for that. If Jesus is the bridegroom, he will supply all the wine that's needed for the Messianic banquet, but that's not what we're here for just at this point in time. Nonetheless, Mary turns to the, to the, uh, the servants and says, whatever he says to you, do it. It's not uncommon in the Gospel of John, then, for Jesus to refuse to do a miracle or refuse to do some kind of request and then turn around to do it anyways. Mary seems to know Jesus is going to do it. There turns out to be six stone water pots used for ceremonial washings, which means this is a massive amount of wine that Jesus has just turned water into, um, about 120 to 180 gallons. As Amos chapter 9, verse 13 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. 
Now these stones were stone pot, water pots were used for purification. Uh, this is this much water is probably used for a, a, a mikvah. A mikvah is a ceremonial bath. Uh, uh, basically, you dig a, a fairly big hole where you you walk down one side of, one side of the stairs and you go into the water and, and immerse yourself, and then you come back up on the other side of the stairs, uh, all cleansed. It's a ritual cleansing. Sometimes before you go into the temple, or sometimes even before you go into the synagogue. We there's a number of synagogues in the ancient world at this point in time that have been discovered archaeologically, and there's often a mikvah uh, related to them. Now, typically, as, as, as the text tells us, this good wine was served first. Then after people were drunk and uh, the lesser wines were, ser were, were served. John customarily notes, that, by the way, that the extraordinary nature of Jesus' miracles. Thus, it was the best wine. Jesus will, later on in this chapter, he's going to raise the temple in three days when it took him 46 years to build a temple. He's going to heal a, a, an official son from a distance. Jesus will uh, heal a crippled man who was lame for 38 years. Jesus will feed a crowd of, of thousands with two fish and five loaves of bread. He's going to give sight to a man who was born blind from birth. He's going to raise a man who was dead for four days. This, this extraordinariness of Jesus' miracles, such that when he turns water into wine, it ain't just any customary wine, it's the best wine. John closes the account by saying this was the beginning of his signs, which he did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, we already talked about the word glory and the significance of that word. It, 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 it connotes and relates to God's glorious presence that dwelt in the temple. In the next passage, Jesus is going to declare himself to be the temple of God. And so his glory is being revealed, that the glorious presence of God that was reserved for the inner sanctum of the temple, where only one person a year could even see it, is now on display for all. In addition to this, John calls Jesus' miracle signs. Uh, throughout the Gospel of John, the word miracle actually never occurs. Uh, there are always signs. Uh, a sign signifies something, signifies something deeper. A miracle simply says, he did this. A sign says, this is the significance of it. So the miracle is that Jesus turned water into wine. The significance of this is that Jesus is now bringing about the new creation as the true bridegroom, inaugurating God's final end times banquet where he marries his people. Verse 13 then picks up. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It, it took us forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John begins this section by telling us that Jesus travels to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is the first of three or possibly four Passovers mentioned in the Gospel of John, depending on how we read chapter 5, verse 1. And as a result, this is the primary means that we have in all four of the Gospels for estimating the length of Jesus' ministry to be about three to three and a half years. John's reference to the Passover of the Jews seems to indicate that the church, by, this, by the time John is writing, did not celebrate the Passover any longer. Jesus goes into the temple, and he finds two groups, the sellers and the money changers. Those who are selling the animals... Uh, the animals were used in sacrificial worship, and the result, and what's happening is, 
is that people are traveling from great distances, sometimes from Galilee, sometimes from farther distances around the Roman Empire, to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. But it's unreasonable for traveling two, three, four days, or even longer, depending on your, how long your, your journey actually was, for them to actually bring animals with them. So these animals that are used in sacrificial worship were then sold in the temple place. Cattle and sheep were used for various sacrifices, and doves were used for purification of women, especially if they were poor, and the cleansing of certain kinds of skin diseases. So it was convenient then for the worshippers who were traveling from afar to go ahead and buy the animals here in the temple courts. Now it's important to note that there's actually no historical evidence that those who are selling the animals or exchanging the coins were doing so in any corrupt fashion. Jesus' anger was uh, apparently in the Gospel of John because they were doing this in the temple, not necessarily because they were doing this in a corrupt fashion. This is the place that's reserved for prayer, in particular prayer for the nations, and they were now making a, a place of commotion and noise. Now, it's also important to note the distinction between John and the Synoptic Gospels on this particular event. Only in the Gospel of John is the commercial activity even the reason for the demonstration. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus charges them with making the temple a house of robbers. That idea of a house of robbers does not actually necessarily imply thievery as much as zealotry. It's a nationalistic stronghold. That is, now the Gentiles were not able to come and pray because they were not allowed into the temple. The outer courts was the only place that was accessible to them, and now those places are, are, are occupied. Furthermore, note, in the synoptics, a house of robbers does not suggest the place where they're actually committing the crime, but a place where those who commit crimes go to hide. In other words, it's the temple where you're hiding, even though you're committing injustice outside the temple. Uh, you're hiding there, but you're doing so in my Father's house, Jesus says. Now, note in John 14, verse 2, Jesus is going to say, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. So his disciples remembered that it was written that, that zeal for thy house will consume me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me, Psalm 69, verse 9. John sees in the experiences of David a prophetic paradigm for Jesus himself. The Jews then say, well, what miraculous sign do you have to verify your authority to do this? And Jesus answers, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, the Jews understood Jesus again, literally. Uh, and as we mentioned at the beginning of our uh, series on the Gospel of John, this is going to be an example of misunderstanding. Jesus is going to make a statement, and his opponents are going to take him literally, and thus signify that they fail to understand the deeper significance of what Jesus is getting at. The Jews turn around and look at Jesus and say, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. We know that the construction of the temple building began in the year 20 or 19 B.C., that construction actually continued until the year 63 A.D. So 46 years brings us somewhere around the year 27 or 28 A.D., exactly depending on how we count. The Jews then say, it took us 46 years to build this, and we're actually still building it, and you're going to do it in three days. John then explains or clarifies that the temple that Jesus has spoken of was his body. As we mentioned before, whenever there's a misunderstanding in the Gospel of John, John's going to clarify for, or for his readers exactly what the misunderstanding is. My Father's house is now the body of Jesus. After the resurrection, they understood what Jesus was talking about. That's a really important point for understanding all of the Gospel stories, by the way. The fact that disciples are, are, are having a difficult time grappling with who Jesus is and, and what he's talking about. Jesus is going to make claims about being the king, which they get that. He's the Messiah, but then he's going to say he's going to die and suffer, and that doesn't make any sense. The idea of a dying and rising Messiah just simply didn't fit in their worldview. It, what are you talking about, Jesus? But after the death of Jesus and after his resurrection, most specifically after the Holy Spirit comes, then the disciples begin to understand these things. Now, important to understand the background of Jesus' cleansing of the temple uh, is Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
It says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He'll clear the way before me. Malachi 3.1 is actually quoted in the Gospels uh, by John the Baptist. I'm the messenger, and I'm clearing the way before the coming of the Lord. Malachi 3.1 continues, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Another important background for this passage is Zechariah 14, verse 21. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now what's important is the word translated as Canaanite in my translation is the same word that's translated as traitor. In fact, if the the ESV, the New Revised Standard, and the New Living Translation all translated as the word traitor, there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Zechariah 14 seems to detail what happens on the day of the Lord. The phrase, in fact, on that day occurs 15 times in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. Now, what's interesting is many readers often take Zechariah 14 as something future to be fulfilled in in the second coming of Jesus. But there's numerous elements of Zechariah 14 that the Gospels seem to indicate are already fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. The ejecting of the traitors signals the eschatological day of the Lord. Now, I mentioned a couple times here that this, uh, this event is often called the, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, it's probably not a, the proper designation, uh, as if Jesus throws the money changers' tables all over the ground and creates havoc and, and clears them all out. The reality is that as soon as Jesus walked away, they just simply picked the tables back up and went back on their business. It's not so much a cleansing of the temple as this prophetic act on, upon the temple. It's a prophetic declaration. It's not, another way of referring to it is what's called a prophetic sign act. You see, sometimes the prophets will say something like, thus says the Lord, and make this prophetic declaration. But sometimes the prophets will simply do something. They'll perform an act. They'll lay on their side for a certain amount of time. Or in this instance, Jesus will overthrow the money changers' tables and create havoc in the temple. And it's the sign that signifies what Jesus is actually prophesying about. And that is, because you've made this place a house of robbers, because you've defiled the temple and taken a place that's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, God will bring judgment upon this temple. And in fact, the temple itself will fall. Now, that's certainly the meaning in the Synoptic Gospels of this particular event. What's intriguing about this event is that John seems to place this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this event at the close of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke chapter 19. The Synoptics place this at the end of Jesus' ministry, and it serves for them kind of this this final straw for which the leaders decide we are now going to absolutely seek Jesus' death. So the question is often raised, was there one cleansing or two cleansings? Does this happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry or does it happen at the end of Jesus' ministry? And I think the question is actually a little bit of a misnomer. For one, I'd say, well, there's only one cleansing. There's certainly no indication that Jesus did this twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. John has intentionally taken what the synoptics put at the end of the gospel and placed it at the beginning. Now, we might conclude that that's because John knew what happened at the beginning of his ministry. It seems that the synoptics have it happening at the end of Jesus' ministry, as I noted earlier, especially in the Gospel of Mark, because Jesus has never been in Jerusalem before. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark knows that Jesus has been in Jerusalem a number of times, but in his narrative, he only takes Jesus to Jerusalem at the end of his Gospel. So if this event is significant enough that this is the final straw that they're going to kill Jesus, and Mark knows he has to tell the story, well, the only place he can fit in this narrative is at the end of the gospel when he has Jesus visiting Jerusalem. Matthew and Luke seem to be following Mark in terms of uh, placement, and John seems to indicate, well, hey, I want to let you know this happened at the beginning, and, and perhaps it did. 
Verse 23 then goes on to say, Now, uh, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. That's an important statement also for understanding what's going to happen in the Gospel of John. Many believed in him. And we would read this and go, wow, that's exciting. That Jesus is attracting lots of crowds and lots of people. These verses likely serve as an introduction to the Nicodemus narrative that's about to follow, which we'll look at in our, in our next podcast. John summarizes Jesus' ministry in terms of the populace. The people are believing in Jesus. But whenever we see the phrase that the disciples believed in Jesus, we need to question whether or not this is a genuine belief or not. The belief in Jesus here seems to be equated with the fact that he did many signs. It says they believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. John then indicates, but Jesus did not trust himself to these people because he knew all men. Their belief was only because of the miraculous signs that Jesus was doing. We're going to see an episode in chapter 6 where there's this great many people following Jesus, and then he's going to give a really hard teaching, and many are going to fall away. And Jesus is going to turn to the disciples and say, are you going to leave me as well? And the disciples are going to respond, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. True belief is believing in Jesus because of who he is. False belief is believing in Jesus only because of what he does for me or because of what he does. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.